The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, uh, Dror, welcome back to The Video Insiders. It's great to be on the mic with you again. Uh, likewise, Mark. It's always a wonderful experience doing the Video Insiders podcast. And uh, I'm very happy we can uh, do it again today, obviously, with uh, another Video Insider. Another Video Insider. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just uh, amazing uh, to talk to the experts who are really making things happen in video. And uh, today we have Pierre Senior Bouyou who is vice president of media engineering at Blue Jeans, and Blue Jeans was recently acquired by Verizon. Well, welcome to the podcast, Pierre. It's really great to have you. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. I'm really honored to be here. And hi, Dor. Very, very happy to be here. Hi, Pierre, and uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm sure it's going to be great. Yeah, we have a uh, very timely topic that we're going to cover today. We're uh, uh, going to talk about WebRTC. But before we dive into that, um, tell us about your background, how you got into video. Interesting question. So my background, you can feel by my accent, I'm French, born and raised in France, and came to the U.S. in 99 to finish studying a Master of Science in Electrical Engineering. And uh, I was at Texas A&M University, and uh, I quickly went into the multimedia lab, and that's really when I started to start touching about image compression and video compression. So uh, I graduated from uh, Texas A&M uh, with uh, a thesis on uh, 3D wavelet encoding. Uh, so that, that really interested uh, uh, me. Um, and then I, uh, I quickly found a job at Cisco System where I started to work as a video engineer. So I've been working for the past 20 years in the Bay Area. And since then, um, one way or the other, I've been in touch with video and I've been riding the wave of the different video codecs. That's great. I um understand that the professor that you studied under at Texas A&M is uh, actually quite famous in uh, video codec circles. Xiong, uh, Xing Xiong Xiong, um, was a very great mentor. In fact, he's really the one who uh, uh, really took me under his belt and, and gave me one of the coolest uh, projects, which was really looking to, he really was uh, at, the, at the core of Wavelet and he really wanted me to take it to the next level and see how it, it, it would apply to uh, to video and that's really what I spent my time doing with with really him on you know on, on my right hand side and, and really teaching me a lot about video compression and things so I was extremely lucky uh, to get him as a mentor and for the for the small story uh, the reason why um, I joined Cisco is one of his uh, good colleague Ji uh, Zhang who was uh, one of the um, uh, a video compression expert in the Bay Area uh, was uh, getting acquired by Cisco Systems and he was looking for video engineers and that's how I ended up uh, finding a very cool engineers at Cisco and yet uh, working for another mentor, Ji Zhang, would really spend the time to show me MPEG-2 and, and you know the, the, the secrets of look-ahead encoding and those things. So I, I was very uh, lucky to have very cool mentors and very good bosses to, to work for. And did you have a chance to run into Wavelet uh, encoding uh, further down your career? Did, uh, did you find any uh, places where it was used uh, commercially? So I did not, not in the video space, interestingly. I think it's, uh, it started to be really used in JPEG 2000. But uh, what I'm finding out in video compression so far, it's, it's really centered around DCT. And I cannot really explain why Wavelet was not being used more, because what it comes 
it comes with lots of benefits from being uh, very easy to compute and, and uh, you can do that with integral numbers and things like that. Um, maybe it will come at some point. Yeah, it's interesting. One of my conspiracy theories is that Wavelet did not succeed because it presented a different type of artifacts. And, uh, you know, people were used to the, uh, the blocking artifact and then applying the blocking. And with Wavelet, it was just, uh, you know, kind of changing of textures and, and other kinds of artifacts that the, the video engineer was not used to. You would think at some point, you know, uh, people were talking about Wavelets and then after that, we're talking about fractals. And now they're talking about uh, uh, neural networks, uh, various uh, different methods of compressing video. But uh, still, you know, the good old uh, motion compensated block-based encoding still rules for some reason. <laughs> I agree with you that there is definitely a different behavior of the different mathematic transform you apply, and, and it, it, it really changed the dynamics. So uh, that's part of what's very hard with video compression is how do you keep the uh, the video codec going and induce some changes without breaking things and fundamentally changing you know how things have been done and how do you make it backward compatible and things. So I think Wavelet was too much of a changer, I agree with you. Well, what a amazing foundation. And so tell us, um, you know, how did you end up in, in blue jeans? I see that you spent quite a bit of time. It, it appears working kind of more on the, on the broadcast side of, of video and blue jeans is quite different. <laughs> yeah. So that's more or less my stories. Uh, Cisco, um, uh, I was working a lot on MPEG-2 and TIDSP and my mentor, Jizang, decided to, to quit Cisco and found a company called Xavio. And I quickly followed because I wanted to keep working with him and, and understand what it takes to uh, to be part of a small. I was employee number four, and, and we grew the company to 200 people. And and we we're working on back then on video pumping engine, and we were trying to to build a hardware based uh, video pump that we, we were trying to sell to uh, to providers like Comcast to really help them transition to to digital TV and, and, and help with streaming. The, the, the company, like any startup, we, we reposition ourselves uh, to provide acceleration for post-production. So that was also an interesting journey uh, because I, I, I was exposed to the, the world of post-production and Burbank Studios and, and understanding the workflows there and then, you know, video editing and color correction. So uh, it was a really nice journey for me. I, I'm talking about it because I feel like along those 20 years, I was really lucky to really engage with different segments. So video production was very interesting. And then we, we the company did not end up so well. So I joined a company called Modulus Video, still um, a lot closer to broadcast. That was in 2006. And we, we were building a, a live broadcast quality like uh, H.264 HD encoder. And uh, and the company went uh, was very successful. We were actually the first... IPTV deployment in US uh, with uh, AT&T Ubers. And uh, thanks to that, we got acquired by Motorola in 2007. And then I stayed at Motorola along the years, uh, dealing more with broadcast, building systems, um, venturing into HEVC. We actually built a, a prototype of an HEVC encoder in 2013, uh, but it was a bit too early. It was a very interesting journey uh, along broadcast. You know, I learned what it takes to have five nines production we had very pristine customers around the globe so that was great but one thing i was lacking was the migration to cloud and the understanding of what it takes to actually stream media over the public internet um, which is really what i ended up doing uh, when i joined a small startup sinova in 2016 
the CEO of that startup, Bob Wilson, was the original CEO of Modulus Video. So you can feel the journey, right? It's it's going back to my roots in some way. And for, in that startups, I was uh, in charge of engineering, and we we were building the Hulu for VR. That was in 2016. We really wanted to build the best in class. Um, 360 video streaming platform and our, our pitch was you get 4k 8k quality at hd rate and uh, we built a, a very cool systems on the cloud uh, using very close to webrtc communication because we needed super low latency um, solution to be able to do field of view based uh, streaming and through that journey i started to get closer to a company like blue jeans because the ingredients that are that are really about BlueJeans, which is being able to stream media, low latency on the public internet, from the cloud, software as a service, uh, all those ingredients, I, I touched them uh, when I was at Sinova and we ended up building a cool platform. We had very cool technology, we filed a lot of patents, uh, which are still valid today. And, and what's kind of sad is I think it's, it's one of the examples where we actually delivered on what we promised we would deliver, but we are looking for the next wave of investment and by the time we are looking for more money, then uh, VR was not the hype anymore. A lot of people were looking at us, com small companies, uh, show me your business case, show me how you're going to make money. And, and frankly, we did not really have a strong business case. You know, to build a Hulu for VR, you better have people willing to spend some money to watch uh, very good quality virtual reality content. And that was not the case. So we went bankrupt. I ended up at Intel for a couple of months, helping the cloud group um, uh, with strategy around video and graphics. And what really happened is BlueJeans uh, knocked on my door um, in 2018 and, and told me about the opportunity. They, they needed somebody like me to join and help out migrating the media platform to a, to a new technology. I, I quickly got excited around the opportunity because the, all the ingredients were there and I felt like I would bring something very different to, to, to the picture. So that, that's how I ended up at BlueJeans. I've been at BlueJeans for almost two years now. And at that time, BlueJeans was still a startup, right? It was before the acquisition? Yeah, that's correct. So that was also the, uh, the appeal for me is join a company, uh, ramping up, uh, really trying to go bigger, uh, Zoom being you know, the, the big competition out there and helping BlueJeans to, to catch up and help you know, on the next phase of the company. And that's correct. We got acquired a year and a few months into after I joined. And what, what was the differentiator that BlueJeans was bringing to the video conferencing market? What, um, what got you excited about this solution and, and made you uh, uh, want to join? Really what, what made me willing to join, uh, I talked to Alago, uh, who is the, the original CTO of, uh, of BlueJeans, and then uh, Guillaume Vive, who was the, CIP, the chief product officer, and they, got, they, they both got me very excited What's unique about BlueJeans and, and what was what made it very popular at the beginning is the fact that they were actually the first company to take um, video conferencing to the cloud and, and turn it into a, a software as a service. Um, and they really focused on uh, interop with anything out there. So the, the BlueJeans has been very strong integrating with any kind of systems that you see, whether it's from the phone all the way to room systems, the legacy room systems. They are actually the, the ones... Uh, integrating all of that really well together and also known for uh, very simple UI and you know the, the delight of customers and, and being able to have a, a very uh, easy to use interface that does it for you. So the analogy that got me excited is 
Yeah, Zoom is out there, and they are really the android of video conferencing, but us blue jeans who are trying to be the apple of video conferencing, we, we don't do zillions of different ways of, of doing the same thing. We don't um, engage with millions and millions of consumers, but we do it very well, and we do it simply, and this is why we are very focused on enterprise. So uh, what's very unique about blue jeans is the focus on very pristine customers like Facebook, uh, who have been customers from the beginning, and uh, Adobe and, and other big companies like this. And uh, so that was the challenge. And, and then really what got me excited is the potential. It sounds like very basic video streaming and audio streaming and, and, and uh, content uh, delivery, but there is that definitely push for innovating, being different, bringing immersiveness and, and the potential to make an impact. Uh, Blue Jeans uh, was kind of the pioneer on smart meetings. So trying to really uh, help companies to to have a more efficient meeting where you can have highlights and capture, you know, small snippets of videos and being able to to binge back your your recording after the meeting if you missed it. So they have been pretty strong at that, and uh, overall, really trying to to push the industry to the next level. Yeah, there's no doubt to me that um, pre-pandemic um, video conferencing technologies and development was maybe a little bit less uh, sexy, shall we say. Uh, but I think now um, it's become just front and center, of course, in our daily lives, our professional lives, etc. So uh, uh, that's exciting. And I think this is a really good transition to um, WebRTC. And what I'd like to, to know is um, our audience, uh, of course, runs the gamut. Um, but, you know, again, most of our audience comes from kind of more the HTTP live streaming um, world where, uh, you know, where it's maybe VOD or even if it's live, um, you know, everything is being distributed via HTTP live streaming. So HLS or Dash. Um, maybe you can give a, a quick primer, shall we say, <laughs> of, of WebRTC for those of us um, that are not living in that world and, you know, know enough, but uh, are not working with it every day. So that was great with HTTP is the fact that it's riding on top of port 80 and then you can really uh, implement and go through any kind of network and, and being able to, to share some video in a very efficient way and, um, and easy to use. What you don't get with HTTP, uh, which is very key to video conferencing, is the low latency aspect of WebRTC. At the end of the day, HTTP, at least the way I always looked at it, um, it's not a push model, right? It's, it's driven by the client who is downloading in a very clever way, chunk after chunk, uh, uh, pieces of videos and makes decisions on, um, you know, what, what does net next chunk should be based on bandwidth availability profiles that, that people want to be looking at and things like that. So it's more client-driven, um, where WebRTC, uh, it's, it's back to my roots of um, streaming data from a server and, and being able to implement a very low latency by by pretty much shutting down any kind of buffering on the receiving side because you are the master from the server and you are streaming bits to the end user. So WebRTC is built on top of RTP, right? So you don't need to use WebRTC to actually implement uh, a low latency streaming uh, framework. But what, once, you, once you get into WebRTC or any kind of uh, low latency streaming architecture, then you can really control timing, uh, synchronization of your different users, 
and really ensure low latency, which is very key as soon as you start touching a two-way communication uh, framework. Uh, and video conferencing is extremely is the is the next level of complexity where you can have a lot of people spread across multiple geographical locations around the world, and they all need to feel like they are in the same room having a decent back and forth conversation. That's where really WebRTC becomes key. What uh, the industry was lacking so far, which really came together with WebRTCs, is having a framework that you can rely on to, to start implementing those kind of two-way communication low latency framework. Um, so WebRTC brings that to you. And, it's, uh, and on top of that, it's integrated to Web Browser. So you don't need to have an application to, to integrate with it. It can be different, directly integrated into your web browser. So um, in my mind, WebRTC really takes the bar to the next level when it comes to implement an end-to-end -end, uh, solution for, for communication. You don't need to be an expert in bandwidth management and, and streaming. You just uh, get media on WebRTC, and, and you build a platform on top, and, and you are up and running. So that's what really WebRTC brings to the table. So how do you manage the bandwidth when, when the bandwidth of the network changes and you need to transmit the video? Um, is this automatically detected by the sender and then the sender adjusts the bitrate? How are bandwidth changes handled because there's no ABR, right? Like you have an HTTP streaming. That's right. So that's where it, it gets, and that's also part of the pros and cons of WebRTC. But WebRTC comes with all those things built in. So there is a, a very advanced bandwidth manager that is part of WebRTC, and uh, it does a very good job at, uh, at uh, measuring the bandwidth based on you know packet departure and arrivals, and you know I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's it actually managing the bandwidth for you, and based on the bandwidth availability, uh, it's helping you to make decisions on what to do in terms of encoding. Uh, keep in mind that because we're in video conferencing domain, there is a, a strong desire to use temporal scalability, uh, which is capabilities to stream uh, a specific uh, resolution with multiple frame rates built in. So you have multiple layers. So uh, WebRTC takes advantage of that technology. And then beyond temporal scalability, then you can pick the different uh, profiles, different uh, formats uh, that you can choose from. So um, more or less, it's very similar to what you end up achieving with HTTP streaming. Uh, it's just that it's more driven from the WebRTC itself uh, rather than the client. And I know that, you know, not all encoders support temporal scalability, correct? That's correct. Not all encoders support SVC, you know, the full temporal plus spatial uh, layering. But temporal scalability, even if not uh, fully advertised, it's kind of built into any encoder and decoder. So, you know, in the industry, what we're finding out is, yeah, it's not officially supported, but... Uh, if you look at the availability of chipsets out there, Shoe64, for example, uh, it does support on most uh, hardware decoders uh, temporal scalability. Uh, what it's tricky is the availability of it from the software side of things. But you're correct that um, in a perfect world, um, SVC would be fully supported on all the encoders, decoders out there, and that would help a lot. What are the latencies, again, uh, typical latencies? You know, when we talk latency, we have to be, I think, specific about, you know, are we discussing end-to-end, -end, uh, you know, from the source to the, uh, to the screen, or, you know, are we just talking the encoder? Um, but let's just talk about, you know, sort of average end-to-end -end latencies. Um, for WebRTC, what are the typical latencies? So typical latencies is if you, at the end of the day, if you want to have 
a pretty decent conversation live with people, you really need to be under 100 milliseconds and 100 milliseconds and below. And um, there's a strong desire to reduce latency even more. But anything beyond 200 milliseconds, uh, whether it's audio and video, especially for audio, then you start talking on top of each other and, and it makes the experience uh, a, a lot less interactive. I'm not claiming that we can always achieve. That's part of the difficulty of building a platform with communication across the world. Uh, sometimes it's actually difficult to achieve that. But you're talking about those kind of latency, 100, 200 milliseconds, no more than that. And, you know, one thing that comes to mind is you probably are dealing with um, over the open internet as well as um, behind the firewall. So like a corporate internet, right? So is it safe to assume that you have much greater control and, and therefore maybe lower latencies, et cetera, if you're behind the firewall or does it, does the situation not really get any better? Corporate network, uh, definitely. This is, this is what we help big companies to implement, like some kind of direct connect uh, solutions where you take advantage of the corporate mesh that people have and you ride on top of that. So that makes it uh, more predictable and things. But when things start to be difficult, is, uh, you cannot control who is accessing what from where, especially uh, the complexity of it has been increasing more and more with the COVID situation where a lot of employees work from home suddenly realize that the Wi-Fi network that they have is with the kids watching Netflix and you know the, the spouse also working from home, then you start dealing with the next level of complexity. So in best case scenario, yeah, you can really achieve uh, better quality with uh, staying within the corporate network. But that's something that it just takes one you know user. The example I'm always using, which is the most difficult we always deal with, is... Uh, the CIO or CTO of a big corporation at home uh, with uh, a very marginal Wi-Fi network and expecting things to work beautifully and it does not. And, and that becomes your fault, right? And how do you resolve that? So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And ironically, why is it the most senior technical executive that has the worst technical infrastructure? <laughs> <laughs> At least that's the one you hear about it. Yeah, I've been in more than one situation where it's like, how is it that the most senior person here is? But but I have to say, you know, a lot of time has passed. And obviously, I've been using uh, video calls much more because of the COVID situation. And in most cases, it just works. It works much better than before. And the experience is good. And, uh, you know, I've been in conferences with hundreds of people and uh, and things just work. Uh, when they're engineered correctly, you know, and with the protocols and the capacity of the internet today, it is possible to have this uh, shared experience uh, in, in a good level. One of the things that's so evident is that you have, of course, um, the, the, the video, you know, the video cam and, you know, you have people, you're looking at their faces, etc. Um, but then you have screen sharing. So, um, you know, desktop PowerPoints, whatever, but just screen sharing. Talk to us about uh, what the impact is to the encoder and how you're forced to make some different decisions, you know, uh, maybe even about codec, um, but certainly about encoder configuration when you're thinking about slides, you know, or, or a desktop compared to my webcam. That's where it gets challenging and also very interesting. And, and there are some things that from my broadcast background I'm bringing to the table, but fundamentally what's very interesting, even for video, by the way, because we are dealing with super low latency video, um, 
it's not like in broadcast where you have five seconds pipeline and you can do a very good job at looking ahead and assessing what's about to happen, scene change, and, and do the best optimal video encoding, right? Uh, on the second pass here, you don't have time for that. So you end up having uh, video encoding with no B-frames. It's the equivalent of security camera and super low latency um, uh, encoding. So you end up encoding with very limited uh, margin you don't use B-frame and, and you are exposed to rate control panics and, and the rate control bursting out and, and spending too much bits compared to the budget. So that's one of the challenge that uh, I'm finding out that I'm not sure it's even resolved completely in that space uh, because of a lot of the video conferencing companies, uh, they might not have that notion of quality-based encoding and, and, and what what to do to actually improve quality and, and use the bits better. But there is that challenge of super low latency, which is really hard. And then when, when it comes down to content, uh, what's interesting is a lot of the content encoding is really more about static frame encoding. Uh, so you end up playing a lot of tricks around variable frame rate. If, if you have a slide that stays for 10 seconds, why do you need to encode that slide at 15 frames per second? So you end up having to be more dynamic. Uh, but the trick is when the slide change, how do you detect that and how you quickly re-encode quickly for, for the lag of the end user watching your slides to not be you know, five seconds before the next slides come. So there is that challenge of out of the blue, slide changing, and, and how, how do you react to that? And I think I, I cannot go too much into details, but different people have different solutions for it. If we're talking about uh, codecs, and uh, you said previously that one of the advantages of BlueJeans is interoperating with a lot of systems. So I assume that in most of your solution, you use H.264. Is that true? And are you also looking into deploying HEVC in some scenarios? So that's what, where, where it's interesting. The, one of the cons from uh, WebRTC, it supports you know, Google Codex. So HEVC is not supported by WebRTC. So you end up having to use um, VP Codex that comes you know, uh, officially supported with WebRTC. And um, I, I did talk about H.264, the, the, where, where you need to interrupt and, and, and think about building a different platform is when there is a need for a device that only can understand H.264, then you end up having to do some transcoding in the cloud of some sort to actually recreate that H.264 flavor that only that room system can, uh, can, can receive. So that's the difficulty of going with a framework like WebRTC. It comes with lots of goodies. It's, it's easy to integrate with. It's supported by the web browser. Uh, it does a very good job at bandwidth management and, uh, and forward error correction, retransmission, all of that is built in. Uh, but then if you want to interrupt with codecs that are not part of the framework, then you are on your own to make it work. So the codecs that are part of the framework, it's VP8, VP9? Correct. Yeah, hmm. that's correct. And then soon AV1. Soon AV1. Yeah. I see. Okay, so because it's a web-based system uh, supported by browsers, then uh, they're going with the web codecs. That's correct. And I think my view on it is because everyone is becoming so popular and we might actually reach to an agreement where, you know, no licensing, open to everybody, uh, supported by big players. Maybe everyone will become the, the codec of choice moving forward. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe not, but I think we as everyone, there is a, definitely a trend to standardize more on everyone across the board beyond WebRTC and that, that will definitely simplify 
my journey on blue jeans, but it's going to take a while. Yeah, I'm seeing, uh, you know, from some work I'm doing that it's absolutely true. AV1 interest is um, is from VOD and, you know, even just live traditional sort of live streaming services. But WebRTC is where it is just hot, hot, hot. And it, you know, it feels like, I don't want to say the foregone conclusion, but it almost feels like that some days that people have decided that for video conferencing and these extremely low latency applications, you know, that are using uh, WebRTC that um, the next codec is going to be AV1. And there's some very interesting tools as well um, available, like the screen content coding tool, which HEVC um, has that in the standard, but it's not really been implemented. So, you know, then it's an extension and then you've got, but for AV1, it's available out of the box. So if your encoder does a really good job with screen content coding using those tools, you really can get some amazing bitrate savings and your slides will pop. You know, they'll look really, really good. Talking about AV1 and super low bitrates, one thing I wanted to talk about is what we're finding out, uh, especially with the COVID situation. And I think the COVID actually changed the way people work and it's going to be a while before people change back and maybe they will never change back so maybe that was the kicker needed to have video conferencing and communication over the internet going mainstream but um, we are finding a need for actually reducing bit rates to more and more and more and keep up with quality there is a need for it sometimes people might wonder do you really need to have you know a good quality video with only 50 kilobits per second uh, streaming and is it really worth it and and those kind of things but what we're finding out is if you really want to scale and start accessing people who might be having very marginal networks uh, in situation in countries like India, for example, where they have a lot of constraint uh, bandwidth, a lot of packet loss, and, and you actually do need um, that kind of solution out there. Today, uh, in, in a lot of cases, you cannot, the bandwidth manager tells us that the only thing that can really go through is audio and the rest, you know, there's just... Um, Imagine the content and, and, and imagine the people because it's not going to go through. So there is definitely a strong need for uh, coming up with more optimized solutions and everyone is definitely one of them. And once we achieve that, then you'll be able to really reach out to more people uh, across the world because not everybody has broadband still. I also saw this solution from NVIDIA where they, they send a, a full frame and then they just send uh, like movements or motions of the key points in in the people's in the person's face, kind of animate that image with the audio, um, which looks pretty convincing, uh, <laughs> and of course much lower bandwidth than streaming the video itself. There is lots of, especially with machine learning and AI coming up. There's also the trend in the industry of rethinking, you know, is, is video compression, block-based encoding is really the way to go of uh, using AI, you know, like, like you described, that one extension of it is take a snapshot of somebody and, and tell the machine learn-based encoder that person is talking, so make it appear like it is talking and synchronize that with the audio um, channel. And, and yeah, I think there, there's definitely a trend. There is bandwidth savings for sure, I think. Uh, what I don't know about is the efficiency of such solutions. Uh, at the end of the day, all doing all of those more advanced solutions are, have a heavy cost on, on the, the power that you need to bring in to actually encode that. There is a general trend uh, towards low delay video streaming um, for streaming like uh, games and doing uh, 
TV broadcasts of, of sports and things like that with the lowest delay um, possible over the internet because you want to compete with broadcast and sometimes even beat you know like cable and satellite broadcast with with a low delay is WebRTC relevant to these type of applications or it just has some inherent limitations in in that it, it doesn't scale to stream the video to millions of users I think it does so what really WebRTC brings to the table is for people who want to drive their quality and want to know for sure that the latency is consistent across the board WebRTC is the way to go because fundamentally you stream packets from the server and your client is more like a slave receiving packets and decoding on the fly and pushing them and, and you don't allow your decoder to um, buffer or things like that. So to me, it's, it's much closer to what I'm used to, which is uh, a network of encoders streaming content to set-top boxes and set-top boxes are, you know, the, the old way are, are more slave um, of your uh, streaming solution. And so WebRTC is definitely the way to go. You shave as much as you can from, from, from your latency by reducing the amount of packets you buffer. And um, it comes at a price of complexity. So the issue with WebRTC is because it's not riding on HTTP port 80 and it's not on TCP, then now you start having to deal with connection issues. So you, what comes built in with WebRTC is the concept of turn server that handles the, you know, the connection of multiple parties um, when you are behind a firewall or, or behind a proxy or you know you're not in the same uh, NAT so that comes uh, for you built into WebRTC but still there is that connection layer that, that needs to be happening to connect people and you can get disconnected and all of that um, so that there's, there's definitely that uh, level of complexity that you need to deal with and then because it's uh, based on UDP, then you don't have guarantee that your packets are going to be delivered. So built into WebRTC again, but it's still something that needs to be tuned. And BlueJeans, we definitely do things on top of that. But you know, it, it's built in with retransmission packets. So when packets are being lost, if your run trip delay is not too big, then you have the opportunity to resend packets before it's time for you to decode. And then there is a level of forward error correction, which is you know, a standard channel coding solution to really send redundancy packets and to help out with potential packet being lost. So it, it makes the overall architecture a bit more complex to deal with. And, and it works very well um, with good networks where it starts to be difficult, at least for, for, for my experience, especially with BlueJeans, is when you start dealing with very special constraint network like a, very high G tier Wi-Fi endpoints, uh, you know, 3G over the phone, uh, very limited bandwidth. A one size fits all from WebRTC is actually something that sometimes you, you know, as an engineering group, uh, we, we feel like we can do better or we can improve. So you end up tweaking things. Uh, but it can definitely scale. To me, the scaling aspect of WebRTC, I don't think HTTP even uh, streaming today, it has the same scale issue, meaning you, you still have one connection from your server to the client, whether you do WebRTC or HTTP, and, and you know, that, that concept of multicast is not really being resolved uh, right. by, by either solution. It's still unicast even with HTTP. Correct. So really my feedback is I think WebRTC, you know, by nature is the way to go uh, for implementing low latency and you have control of the timing of the delivery of the packets. And in today's world, my biggest um, 
concerned with HTML streaming, even though there is a lot of good work around, you know, ultra low latency chunking and all of that. So people have proven that they can do a very low latency HTTP-based streaming. What's hard to control is the behavior of all your endpoints, all the clients. So if you're in a home and you have two kids watching a live event on, you know, on whatever provider, whatever client you have, and there is linear TV going on and there is social media feeding you, then the chance of all those events being synchronized is very tiny and you end up having people hearing about a soccer goal from the social media before it lands on TV and, and 10 seconds later you see it on your on your HTTP stream. Uh, I think that makes it very inconsistent. WebRTC has that advantage that you can control your your streaming and consistency of delivery across across the board. So it's interesting. Um, Google is implementing Quick in uh, Stadia, and of course, this I guess you know you could say is kind of a hot rod um, WebRTC. <laughs> and I'm just curious, uh, Pierre, um, are you looking at something like Quick? either as a, uh, a way to get better performance uh, beyond even WebRTC or some advantages, or do you feel the ubiquity of WebRTC, even with its complexity, is, uh, you know, is where you need to be? You know, in my wish list, I would hope that Quick takes on, uh, because the issue with HTTP live streaming right now is it, it does not go over UDP. So it's, it's based on TCP and when you're dealing with difficult networks, then you have TCP storms, and it, it's not meant for streaming media, right? So it's implemented in a very clever way. It's very, very much genius, but it has some limitation. And WebRTC, on the other hand, uh, what we described is it's it's great. It has low latency. It has bandwidth management built in. Uh, it's in integrated to uh, to web browser, great. But it comes with a lot of you know complexity and how you build it together. Quick is somewhere, at least my view is somewhere in the middle where it's it's riding the HTTP uh, wave, but it's doing that over UDP. The, the trick is going to be, can it become the standard? You know, can can we fast forward five years and, and talk again together and say, hey, Quick is now the super hot thing? I wish it is because it's the best of both, I think the best of both words, um, if, if, it, if it becomes mainstream, which I, which I, will, I wish it will. What I think the industry is lacking right now, which happened thanks to HTTP streaming, is you don't really have yet a commoditized uh, solution that any player out there, like if I, if, if I want to, to, to go and found a startup around, or let's, let's build a, a two-way communication platform over the top to, you know, to, to help fuel um, self-driving car with videos and things like that, you kind of have to build it on your own end to end. And WebRTC is definitely a good foundation to start with, but it's not plug and play like uh, like you have on HTTP streaming, right? So I think Quick to me is kind of the, the potential to build that, uh, to become that new standard in today's world where you know everybody talks about 5G and low latency and and you want to start building some uh, very cool adaptive reality, virtual reality, and and I think. That that's what the industry is lacking right now, and it could be that Quick is the is the framework uh, that will enable that. You brought up a very interesting point because, you know, HTTP is is a standard, and you know HLS and Dash are standards, but in most applications and video services, it's end-to-end -end systems. It's a, a server and a player from the same company, the same vendor, or the same provider that are talking to each other, and. 
I believe right now with WebRTC, the situation is the same. You don't have this seamless connectivity, let's say, between a Microsoft Teams client and a Google Meet client. They can't talk unless there's some bridge in the middle, right? Yeah, yeah that, that's correct. You, you ride on the WebRTC highway, but you still need to implement your own flavor of it. Each, each player, each vendor is handling communication and, and user management and profile and connectivity and identification and, and you end up uh, building your, your own solution around WebRTC. Where were some of your major challenges when building the BlueJeans uh, platform? Uh, I think you went over some of those uh, um, issues, especially when uh, trying to support clients with uh, very challenging uh, network uh, issues. What were some of the other challenges that uh, you faced when uh, developing this platform? What I'm finding interesting is really the challenge of public internet dealing with all kinds of flavors of good network all the way to a very borderline network where we, are, we end up questioning yourselves if, if it's even worth it to actually try to stream anything uh, to those end users because they have such marginal network conditions. So that, that's really been a challenge. Um, and that's where WebRTC also reaches its limit. Like any kind of framework, it's very hard to do a one-size-fits-all technology. It's, you know, I'll give credit to, to the WebRTC community. It's improving day by day. All those things are going to get fixed eventually and maybe turn into quick at some point. Uh, but uh, in today's world, in COVID world, where you need to reach a lot more people and with a with lot more difficult networks, we are reaching our limits. So the reason why you see players like BlueJeans and Zoom and others having their own application um, is also because they want to implement their own streaming stack at some point, right? They want the quality such a uh, such an ingredient to a communication solution and you have engineering working on it. You want to control your destiny. You want to be uh, special. You want to optimize for your own needs. So the difficulty I'm finding with BlueJeans is WebRTC is one flavor of our solution and we have WebRTC today as, a, you know, what we call a first-time user kind of, uh, kind of environment where you give people the opportunity to use BlueJeans right away. They don't need to install an app and things. But uh, in today's world, there is still a strong desire to carry those customers away from WebRTC into our app because our app gives better features, um, better bandwidth management, um, and, and it's actually easier to develop in that framework because you don't need to follow you know, the, the WebRTC um, evolution day by day, right? So um, I think that's the most difficult challenge that I'm having with the team is we have those two different solutions, something that is more internal and something that is WebRTC. And how do you keep up with both? Because right now you kind of need both. Um, it's also from the fact that, and I think it's getting better day by day, but WebRTC is, it's not that easy to add your own secret sauce to it. Um, you have to make a decision whether you want to fork away from the main line of WebRTC and start implementing things your way a little bit. And, and how do you deal with updates from WebRTC community that you don't have yet in your code base and how do you keep up? Or you decide to ride the wave of the latest, greatest WebRTC and you're not having that flexibility of implementing things that differentiate, your, differentiate yourself from, from, the, uh, from the community. So it's a, it's a bit of chicken and the egg. Um, so that to me, that's the biggest challenge that I'm seeing right now. Um, one of the things I'd like to see is can, could WebRTC turn into something that is um, meant for being more pluggable? 
you know, one thing I've seen, for example, I'm, I'm a FFmpeg GStreamer background, right? One of the things GStreamer built really well was the concept of pipeline and being able to to very quickly add something to the pipeline, change something. Um, it, I think that concept, I wish it was a bit more in WebRTC, you know, make it more pluggable, make, make it more uh, user-friendly to add, remove, change things. Uh, that, that's really the challenge. Uh, you cannot do without WebRTC. You, you actually have to have a solution around it, but it cannot be the only solution you have uh, if you want to differentiate and, and you know, having some special features that cannot be supported in WebAssembly, for example. Very interesting. Well, those are excellent comments. And uh, Dror, I think this was just an awesome discussion. And, you know, I know we'd like to bring on some more um, folks to come on and talk about WebRTC from sort of different angles. That is still the plan, right? Yes, it is. It's a very hot topic. And uh, as, as we heard today, and it really has uh, amazing potential, uh, not only for video communication, but uh, for other applications as well. Uh, so, Pierre, thank you very much for a very interesting uh, conversation. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm very honored. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Pierre. And uh, for anyone who would like to come on the show, we just want to remind you that uh, just send us an email, thevideoinsiders at beamer.com, right? Yes, thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. Drop us a line. You can also message us through the LinkedIn group of the Video Insiders. So drop us a line and uh, we'll see you all uh, next time on the Video Insiders. The Video Insiders. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.